As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your words so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Let your face shine on us now in Christ so that we might be saved. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5. Micah is one of what we typically refer to as the minor prophets, Uh, not minor because they're not important, but minor because they're not very long. Um, And so it can be hard to hunt and find it there in the Old Testament. Micah is between the books of Jonah and Nahum. And it's on page 989 of many of our pew Bibles, Micah chapter 5. And if you're visiting with with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series uh, through some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus into the world. And one of those prophecies is found in Micah chapter 5. That's a prophecy that will be referred to uh, when the wise men want to know in Matthew 2 where Jesus is born, who is to be born the king of the Jews. Uh, the, the people know the answer. The answer is Bethlehem, and they know the answer from this particular prophecy in Micah. So Micah chapter 5, we want to read the first five verses, uh, just the first part of verse 5, but that'll be our text for this morning. So Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. As I said, as we're preparing for Christmas, we want to think about these prophecies that talk about the coming of Messiah into the world. Uh, we started in Numbers 24, back when Israel was in the wilderness, and then we fast-forwarded nearly 800 years uh, to Isaiah chapter 7. And so we're fast-forwarding again, but not quite as far here. We're only moving forward in history about 33 years from Isaiah 7 to Micah chapter 5. So it'd be kind of like going from 1990 to 2023. Um, And if it disturbs you to find out that 1990 was 33 years ago, um, I don't know how I can help you with that. It's just just the facts. Um, So that's kind of the time frame we're talking. From Isaiah 7 to Micah 5 is about 33 years. Um, And so we're moving really in, in history from around 734 B.C. to about 701 B.C. 
Um, and we, we can say that with some kind of certainty because we know about some of these events that Micah talked about. So Micah and Isaiah lived at the same time. They were contemporaries. They lived and prophesied. They overlapped in history. Um, and they were both given prophecies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Messiah who would come. And we want to think about this particular prophecy that Micah gives about the promised Messiah who will come and give his people peace. Uh, This is a great prophecy of the Messiah because it tells us what he will do. He will bring peace to his people. Um, And this is the wonderful hope that's held out to us here. And how does Micah communicate that truth to us? Well, the first thing we see is the Lord's call to rally. That's where this text really begins, with the Lord's call to rally. And then we're told about the Lord's choice to rule, about what kind of king is coming. And then finally, the Lord's kingdom to establish what kind of kingdom Messiah will build when he comes. And so it's wonderful for us to think about what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does for his people. So we have the Lord's call to rally, the Lord's choice to rule, and the Lord's kingdom to establish. Uh, There's a call to rally, a call to rally the troops here uh, as this text begins. And it's a call to rally in the midst of severe distress. There's a reference here to the siege that's been laid against the people of God. Uh, Moving forward 33 years in history uh, can make some momentous changes. Uh, We can even think just moving it forward in history from 1990 to 2023. In the midst of that, we have what happened on September 11th. That makes a big change between uh, the times. And and likewise, there's been a big change in the times since, since Isaiah first made his prophecy in the time of King Ahaz. And that is that Israel, the ten northern kingdoms, have fallen to Assyria. We generally fix the Assyrian captivity that the northern ten tribes were taken into in 722. This will not be on the test later, Um, but it's important to know how much has changed. There was the threat of Assyria that was raised to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7. That threat has now come, and just as was prophesied, it has washed over all of Israel and brought them off into captivity. It has come up to the neck of God's people at this time. Assyria has swept through Israel, it has swept through the northern kingdoms, it has swept through the southern kingdoms into Judah, and it's come all the way up to Jerusalem. Almost Jerusalem is all that is left, and it's been under siege by the Assyrians. That's how we know that this was around 701, because that's when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, put Jerusalem under siege. So this fact that they are under siege is a huge distressor in the kingdom because this is the only fortified city really that seriously remains resisting them. And so when the whole land has been conquered and you're surrounded, where are you going to look for help? Um, That's the reality of the distress that has come upon God's people. That's the reality they're experiencing now when they are under siege. They've gone from being the daughter of Zion to the daughter of troops. Um, here in verse 1. And maybe you think, well, that still sounds pretty good. Troops, um, isn't that still okay? Well, troops is a very small military unit. So it's a picture of weakness, that there are only troops left to defend the city. Um, And that, that metaphor of weakness is extended when we read that not only are the troops too weak, really, to contend with their enemies, the king is sort of powerless to defend himself. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel was a way to refer to the king. The king was the one who was supposed to have the rod of justice. He was the one who was supposed to be dealing out 
justice to his kingdom, but instead now he's the one being struck. And being struck in the face carries forward this idea that you really can't defend yourself. Um, This is a picture of real distress, real weakness. And in the midst of this weakness, God calls these troops to rally, right? To muster their strength. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, Get ready to go forth to war. Um, And you might think these troops would be inclined to say, muster to do what? Um, Where are we going to go and what are we going to do with the siege that's laid against us? Um, What are we supposed to do against this great army? It seems a strange command to give a small group that's already under siege. Uh, But God is reminding his people of his sovereign purposes in this. And that's always what we need a reminder as God's people in the midst of severe distress, that our God has not forgotten us, that God has not somehow allowed things to run off the rails or they are outside of his plan, that God's sovereign purposes are still at work. And God's sovereign purposes for his people is not to allow them to fall in certain defeat, but to bring them consummate victory. And the key to the reminder that God is at work in all that the people are suffering is really found in verse 3, when Micah reminds us that God is at work. He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. God has a plan for his people. And that plan is to give them up for a time, but not to give them up once and for all. To give them up until the time where his salvation is ready to be revealed. Um, That's what God is doing. He's working. He has a plan. Even when we can't understand what his plan is, he has a plan that he is working. And before we, we think about how God will deliver his people ultimately in the coming of the Messiah who's promised, we should pause and reflect on that truth that we have a God who never abandons his people to distress for no purpose. God is always working things for the good of his people. Even when we cannot track out how this could possibly be for our good, what we're suffering, we know that our God never allows us to suffer unless he is working good through it. That he does promise to bring us good. He has not abandoned us. He is working out a purpose for the good of his people. And that's why so often the call that comes to God's people in the midst of distress is to continue to wait on the Lord. Right? We're told here he's going to give them up until the time. Until the time when the deliverer comes. That God will always come for his people. And that's why there are so many calls in the scripture to wait on the Lord. The Psalms are filled with them. Uh, one we could just think of from Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen is wait on the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Why are we called to wait for the Lord? What does it mean to wait for the Lord? One person said it's to accept his time and therefore his wisdom. To trust that the Lord's wisdom is at work. That he is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That he is a God of justice and that we are waiting for the God of justice to do what he always does for his people. Which is to show them good. 
What we are waiting for is beautifully expressed by Isaiah in Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Um, What are we waiting for? Waiting for God to be gracious to us. We're waiting for God to be merciful to us. The Lord does not forget to be just to his people. And so Isaiah says, blessed are all those who wait on him. Who wait on him with faith and hope because their waiting will not be in vain. Uh, They they will end in blessing. Blessing. And in this passage, it ends particularly with the blessed arrival of the Messiah. That's the blessing that delivers God's people. That's the blessing that will come in God's time to God's people. The one who is the Lord's choice to rule. So when the the troops are called to muster their strength, you might think, oh, someone must be coming to break the siege. Maybe there's a big force we don't know about that's riding to the rescue even as we speak. And it would have been a strange thing for people in Jerusalem who are besieged and beleaguered to hear, you should really hold out hope because the troops from Bethlehem are coming. And they would have said, what is that, like ten guys? Bethlehem is coming. What good is Bethlehem? What good is Bethlehem to a city under siege? Bethlehem is a tiny little town. What kind of strength could come from Bethlehem? In December of 1944, we maybe know our, from, our, from our World War II history that the famous 101st uh, Airborne Division was encircled at Bastogne in the, in the Belgian Ardennes Forest. And they were under attack by German forces, and they were surrounded. They were encircled, and the weather was too bad for the Air Force to fly, and the weather was too bad for the infantry to arrive. But they were holding out hope that General Patton's 3rd Army would come and break the siege. And eventually the weather broke and and General Patton's army was able to come. The 4th Armored Division of the 3rd Army came and delivered them. Um, If you're under siege in Jerusalem, that's what you want to hear. General Patton's 3rd Army is on the way and the 4th Armored Division is coming. That's not what Bethlehem has to offer you. Bethlehem is not General Patton's 3rd Army. Um, It was too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. In Joshua 15, when all the cities of Judah are listed, a hundred of them with their villages, Bethlehem doesn't make the list. Um, It's too small to be reckoned. And so it might be a strange thing to say, well, rally yourself because Bethlehem is on the way. There were no troops that could be expected from Bethlehem. But there was a strength that Bethlehem brought to mind. Bethlehem was not a strong place in terms of numbers, but someone strong had come from Bethlehem. A mighty warrior king had come from Bethlehem. Uh, David had come from Bethlehem. And that's really what Micah is doing here, not saying Bethlehem can offer all kinds of military strength to help the siege of Jerusalem, but it's a reminder of that old strength that came from Bethlehem. The old strength that was the strength of the whole kingdom. It would have brought up in the minds of Micah's hearers that old legendary strength of King David, which was in Micah's day a distant memory. Um, King David lived about 300 years before this. 
Uh, So he's still further back in time for them than George Washington would be for us. Um, But if you raise the name George Washington, it brings certain associations in our minds. Um, And the same thing when they said Bethlehem and they thought about David, it would bring associations, some that were so old in their day they didn't remember them personally, but they remembered the stories about David. They remembered who David was for the kingdom and what kind of strength he brought. Um, And that's what I think the Holy Spirit intends to do here, is to bring into remembrance that old strength, that old strength that God raised up in David's day. And the passage is shot through with those reminders of that old strength. Um, It's shot through with reminders like where David came from in Bethlehem, so it's a reminder of his origins, that he came from Bethlehem, but it also would have reminded them why he came from Bethlehem. Why David, why God sent Samuel to anoint David as king in Bethlehem. And why was David to be anointed king? Well, God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 and 3, I have provided for myself a king. And he said, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. That was the great good news of David as a king, that he would be a different kind of king than Saul was. God, because God was essentially saying, I've already given them a king that was a king for them. They had said, give us a king like the nations. And when Samuel went to God and said, what am I to do, what am I to do with this for this people? They've rejected me. God said, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. But he told Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Saul was a king for them. That's why he wasn't a very good king. And that's why there was so much hope when David was raised up because God said, I've provided now for myself a king. Go anoint the man who will be king for me. That's what made David great. He was a king for God. He wasn't a perfect king, he wasn't a sinless king, but he was a king devoted to God. He was a man after God's own heart. And what does this hope held out in Micah 5 hold out for the king who's coming? From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Here's another king like David who will be a king for me. And that was good news for the kingdom. Because the origins of David being a king for God told us something about how the reign of David would go. That he would be a king for God. And because he was a king for God, God was for him and for his kingdom. It reminds us not only of the strength where David came from, but also what David did as his kingship extended over Jerusalem. What kind of king was he? He was a shepherd. Right? We, we remember the story of when they went to anoint David, and Jesse said, well, there's a number of guys here that look very kingly. One of them must be the king, and God said, none of them are the king. And he said to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? Well, yeah, but there's one who's out in the field. He's shepherding right now. Go get the shepherd. I need a shepherd. And we're reminded in Scripture that that's what God did. He took him from being a shepherd of the sheep to shepherd his flock Israel. 
and that he did such a good job as the king because he was a shepherd. And the glory of his kingdom was spoken of in shepherding terms. Psalm 78, 70 to 72, we read, God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. He was a man after God's own heart. And with an upright heart, he shepherded the people. And he was a wise king. He guided them with his skillful hand. In other words, he had the wisdom to know what to do for the kingdom and how to do it well. And that's the kind of king he was. And so when Micah sees the king that's coming, the Messiah to come, what does he encourage God's people with? He says he will stand in verse 4, and he will shepherd. Here now is also a shepherd king, a king who will guide his people with an upright heart and with a skillful hand. Another shepherd is coming like David. And that was good news because what was the result of David's reign in Israel? The kingdom was at peace. He brought peace from the enemies all around them. And the kingdom was brought together. All the tribes of Israel were brought together under his kingship. And under him the kingdom was united. And it was strong. And it was secure. Right? The tribes of Judah from which David came said, yes, we want him as a king. But all the other tribes said, yes, we want him as a king. He united the kingdom. And it was strong. And it was secure. And it was at peace. And justice was done. He was a great king. God did through him what he promised him he would do. In 2 Samuel 7, I will make you a great name like the great ones of the earth. He was great, but he is gone. And Hezekiah is ruling, and he's a good king, but he's weak. And the kingdom is divided, and half of it is destroyed now. And what remains is weak. It dwells under constant threats. It's almost in perpetual conflicts with enemies. The old strength has evaporated in present weakness. That's why there's so much promise in the Messiah who's to come. The Lord's choice to rule. He will be like David in many ways, recalling David's strength. And he will be a king not from Jerusalem, but from Bethlehem. Not from this line of failed kings in Jerusalem, still from David's line. His origins are of old, from ancient days. He's still one of David's sons, uh, but he will not be like these weak kings. He will be strong. And in fact, the kingdom that he brings will come in a new and more powerful form. It recalls the old strength, but it's not just the return of the old. It's a new strength a new and more powerful form. It's the strength Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is an even greater kingdom, an even greater strength that's coming by God's grace. And what is the kingdom he comes to establish? That's what Micah celebrates here, the kingdom to establish that the Messiah will bring. What kind of kingdom will it be? When he stands and shepherds God's people as the ruler that is for me, what kind of kingdom will he bring? Well, the first thing we see here is that it's a repaired kingdom. That's, I think, the thrust of what we read in verse 3. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What's the first thing that happens after this king is born? When she who is in labor gives birth to this king. What's the first thing that happens? The brothers return. Remember, this is a time of division. This is a time where the northern kingdom is not just divided from Judah, but has been destroyed by Assyria. The kingdom is, seems like it's irreparably broken. What is the promise here? The rest of his brothers shall return. This is a picture of conversion. This is a picture of a people who've turned away from their God and from their king and from his kingdom coming back. Coming back to the kingdom and coming back to the king and ultimately coming back to the God whose king he is. What happens when Messiah comes? The kingdom is repaired. The rest of his brothers will return, and the rest of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel, to the people of Israel. That's what we're told in verse 3. The rest of his brothers will return to the sons, to the people of Israel. The people of Israel has not existed since David's grandson divided the kingdom. It's been two people. It doesn't say they'll return to the sons of Judah. It says they'll return to the sons of Israel. This is a picture of the kingdom repaired. That's what Messiah will do. He will reunite the kingdom and repair it. And when he comes, it won't just be a repaired kingdom, it'll be an exalted kingdom. That's the promise of his kingdom in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. This kingdom will be an exalted kingdom. It'll be a kingdom that's exalted in power. He will stand and shepherd in the strength of Yahweh. There's no stronger strength you can have as a king than to have the strength of the Lord. Right? His power is an almighty power. And that's the promise here. Messiah will have the almighty power of God. That's more power than David ever had. This kingdom will be exalted in power and it will be exalted in glory. He will shepherd in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Just as there's no strength greater than the strength of the Lord, there's no majesty greater than the name of our God. That was the promise David was given. Your name will be great to the ends of the earth. You'll be made one of the great ones. 
But this is a promise of one who will have a name that is greater than any other name. The great glory of the name of the Lord. There's no glory higher. Uh, This kingdom will be great. He will be exalted in power and in glory. And in that exalted power and glory, he will bring about the security of his kingdom. It'll be repaired, it'll be exalted, it'll be secure. It'll secure the dwelling place of his people. Right? They shall dwell secure. That was a great promise that was given to David that his sons would make God's people dwell in security. It was a great promise, but it was never fully delivered even in David's day. The promise that was expressed in 2 Samuel 7, 10 and 11. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The promise is when Messiah comes, God's people will dwell securely. There will be no more enemies to harass them. It will be a secure kingdom, and it will be a kingdom of peace that extends to the ends of the earth. They will dwell secure, for he will be, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That was always the hope of the throne of God's people. That it would extend to all places in the world. That it would extend to the ends of the earth. That was the hope held out in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance to the ends of the earth. That was the hope held out there. That was the hope that Solomon expressed in Psalm 72. uh, When he wrote that to the king, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That was his hope for the kingdom, not realized in his day. But that was always the hope of God's people, that it would extend to all places and that it would include all people, that all people would be brought in to the kingdom of God. And that was the blessed realization that the Jerusalem Council made in Acts 15 when they said, you know those promises in the Old Testament about the kingdom being extended to the end of the world, I think it's happening. Because Gentiles are coming to the king. And I think this is exactly what God said through the prophet Amos. And they quoted that in Acts 15. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. And that's where the glory of this kingdom is really shining forth for us here because it's a hope not only that Israel and Judah will be reunited, that God's old covenant people will be brought together, but it's an inclusion that includes not just the two Jewish peoples who were separated, but Jew and Gentile together, brought together in this kingdom of peace that extends to the end of the earth in Messiah. That's the hope that's held forth, that the whole world will be able to find unity in this one king and come to him and find peace in him so that all people in all places can come under that one king and enjoy the benefits of the peace of his kingdom that they together can be united and strong and secure 
and at peace. And it's really this this hope for what Messiah will do, extending the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, that really helps us to understand more completely both the hope of this prophecy and the hope of Christmas. Because it teaches that all who return to Christ in faith are the true people of Israel. What is the hope, really, of Christmas that we all have? That all people would come to Christ. We can get sentimental about Christmas, but for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I love about this season is you hear almost everywhere you go, people singing about Christ and what he's done for the world. And you know it's people who don't believe it. You know it's people who oftentimes are just singing because it's associated with the season. And I always wonder what they think of that, what they're singing. But you can't miss it, right? You hear these songs. You hear these reflections on what Jesus has done for the world. And it reminds us that that's what the hope is. That the whole world would be brought into the one people of God under Christ who is the true Israel of God, that he has extended his kingdom to all people who will come to him in faith, even to the ends of the earth. That's why I read from Ephesians 2 for our assurance of pardon. Because that's the hope that Paul holds out. It really almost could be an extended reflection on this passage. When we get to heaven, we can ask the Apostle Paul whether he had Micah 5 in mind when he was writing Ephesians 2, because the thing he keeps coming back to is he will be our peace. He is our peace who has made peace by the blood of his cross. He's the one who has brought together Jew and Gentile into one people of God, breaking down the wall of hostility, creating one people, reconciling us all by the death of his son. Whether we were nearby or far away, he preached peace to us. And in him and in his cross at his work, we find our peace. This is the glorious hope of what Jesus has come to do. He is the fulfillment of the true Israel of God. The Israel of God in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. That's why everyone who comes to him in faith becomes the Israel of God, becomes the people of God. And this is our hope, and hopefully this is our constant prayer for the world, that the rest of the brothers would return to the people of Israel. That the rest of the brothers and sisters would return to the people of Israel. That God's kingdom would be built. Built up in the one in whom the true Israel of God is found. This is really the key to understanding what the scriptures say about the Israel of God. As one person put it, Old Testament ethnic Israel finds its true goal and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why all who come to Christ in faith are the Israel of God, are the true people of God. Jew or Gentile, we are all one in him. That's why also outside of Christ, there is no longer any true Israel. It is those who are Christ's who are the people of God. And the hope that Christmas holds out to us is anyone who comes to Christ will find their peace in him will find the peace of the kingdom that he promises. Because by grace through faith, Christ is the peace for all to the ends of the earth. That's the encouragement that this passage brings us. And that's what we can celebrate this Christmas. 
that we know him, the true king. That we have embraced him by faith. That the Messiah has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. That he has made peace for us by his blood. Shed for us on the cross. That he continues to watch over us as our good and great shepherd king. And that one day soon he's returning again in glory. To bring the perfect peace and security of the kingdom that was promised to David and that was promised to us in Revelation 7. That they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The first Christmas reminds us that he has come. And it holds out to hope for us for the next advent of Christ. The return of our Lord that's coming soon. May we continue to long and pray that the chief shepherd would appear and be our eternal peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this prophecy that brings to mind the old strength of David and reminds us that Christ brings a new strength. We thank you that he is our king, that he is ruling and reigning even now. We thank you that his kingdom has begun, and we look forward to the day when he will return again in glory and consummate that kingdom. We pray that all here from all the different walks of life, from the different ends of the earth, Lord, would come to Christ in faith, and we would rejoice that the rest of the brothers have returned to the people of Israel. For our desire is that many people would come this Christmas season to hear of Christ and to come to him and have life in his name. And for those of us who do know him and have come to him, we pray that you would continue to fill us with the hope that Christ is our peace and remind us that he has made peace with us and with you by the blood of his cross. We praise his name and we pray that you would hear our prayers for we ask them in his name. Amen.